Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Lena, the founder and CEO at Bright Payments. Lena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure. And uh, you have an amazing uh, career. You have been at uh, Klarna. You have served also uh, as a CEO of the consumer consumer fintech company listed in, in the Swedish stock exchange and and now leading your own company uh, bright payments uh, but better than myself it would be great to to get to know your story and then to share it with uh, with our community yeah, no i'm very happy to share of course um it is true i, I haven't done much else other than fintech <laughs> that really <laughs> summarizes my uh, my cv quite well and mostly with a focus on payments um but as you already said i started um my journey in the space in 2010 when I started at Klarna, um, which is, of course, now a, a rather well-known brand um, here in Europe and, and beyond. But at the time, it, it was a much smaller business. And um, I started out doing marketing Klarna, did that for several years. Um, and during my time in Klarna, I also worked with their acquisition of a company called Sofort. So maybe the original account-to-account payments company in Europe, uh, I would say, doing account-to-account payments um, even before that became a term or even before PSD2 mm -hmm. became a term, which is now very much the foundation of what we do in Bright. Um, but yes, I did that for several years, very focused on sort of growing BNPL and marketing BNPL um, to merchants across Europe under, under Klarna's roof. And mm -hmm. then after doing that for seven years, moved on to Clearer Financial Services, which is another BNPL slash consumer finance player based here in Stockholm. Um, as I guess most people in, in the space appreciate, Stockholm is very much a fintech hub. So there's a lot of really cool fintech companies here. Aclero is one Absolutely. of them. Very different environment. Um, a stock listed business. Um, actually a, a spin out of a large e-commerce group um, that had decided they wanted to have their own fintech that they had sort of incubated in the group that had then grown really, really nicely. Um, so I moved over to Clearo first as a CPO, so overseeing product development and marketing, um, and then later took it over as the CEO. Um, so that was my my other big career step, um, I would say. Um, I focused mm -hmm. more on consumer finance, though, arguably. So we launched uh, consumer savings, we launched consumer loans. So going more direct to consumer away from a B2B2C business model, which I've been doing prior to that. And um, yeah, during that period of time, I started my, or I, I had the idea to start my own company, which is Bright Payments. So that's how how things got their start. And now we are all curious to know uh, what is Bright Payments and, uh, <laughs> and where are you in the process of, of building your, your startup? That's a good question. What is it that <laughs> we do? So I started Bright in 2019 um, together with our tech lead um, who contributed the initial uh, version or the, the embryo of our first um, mm -hmm. product basically. So we're fully focused on account, account account payments, instant bank payments, if you will, is what we like to call it, because we're very focused not just on payment initiation, but on instant processing. Mm -hmm. So in short, what we do is we allow consumers to use their bank account to make a payment online or receive um, a payment online, always oh, connected to a merchant. Um, so we don't do peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, it's always basically between a consumer and a merchant. Um, in both directions, so to say. So that means that we serve mm -hmm. e-commerce retailers, um, trading platforms, um, auction houses, 
marketplaces, but also for the payout side companies that want to pay consumers. So, for example, that could be um, insurance companies that pay out consumer claims. Um, it could be gig economy if you want to get a freelancer paid. Um, could be marketplaces, of course, if you're a seller rather than a buyer. Uh, we can facilitate that too. Um, so those are the main money flows that we handle, right? And we do that now um, since 2019 at a total of 21 markets across Europe. Wow. So it's been quite internationally spread out at this point. And in terms of the, the business model, uh, how does that, that work? It's actually quite classic. So we contract primarily with the merchant. So we're also B2B2C. Mm -hmm. So back to B2B2C again. Um, <laughs> and then um, we offer them basically a service that they can in turn offer to the consumers. We're always visible as a payment method. So we're an actual branded option towards the consumer. But for consumers, it's always free of charge. So we monetize solely as most payments businesses do um, on the fees that we charge our connected merchants. Got it. And in terms of the state of growth, uh, any any metrics that you'd like to share, funding, headcount, etc., so people can relate to where you are in in the process of scaling your company. Yes, absolutely. I think we're a classic scale up. Um, at this point, we're just over eighty people. Um, the business is three and a half years old. Um, and we're getting to a point, we've actually been really cash efficient. Um, so we haven't done huge funding rounds. We've, we've raised in total a little over 10 million euro um, mm -hmm. to date. Um, well but have been very, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, it's, given where we are in the space, I think a lot of the competitors have done larger rounds, but we've been, yeah. we've been able to run quite fast with this nonetheless. So we haven't had to raise more um, really to get to the stage where we are. And we continue on that journey right now. This is a topic that I'd like to double down a little bit at because uh, I think it's it's also great to celebrate raising less and being more sustainable and having stronger uh, units economics. Again, nothing against raising more money. Uh, it, it, it is really a, a strategy and a, a potential path. What I'd like to see is that there is also a path going into that direction and it helps with the correction that we are seeing uh, mm. today uh, as well. So let, let's kind of uh, discuss or uh, highlight some of the takeaways that you had in, in the first chapter of your career uh, with, with Klarna. So it definitely a company that scaled uh, a lot, one of the most successful in the European mm. ecosystem. If you'd like, if you would have to kind of um, highlight some of your takeaways or lessons learned, what would you say about uh, that stage of your career? Mm. Now, I mean, they have done extremely well, and it was a very interesting environment to grow up in, so to say, um, because it really was yeah. basically my first fintech job, of course. So that's where a lot of my learnings come from. Um, but one of the takeaways that I had is I think what, what they've done really well is they've recruited really good people, really ambitious mm -hmm. people um, with a really high intrinsic le level of motivation. And that is definitely something that I think when you look at any business, you typically have um, a set of individuals that make a really big impact on the business. And those tend to be the ones that have like innate motivation that really want to do, not just spend time, not just go to work, but actually do something during their time that is meaningful right. and they're more engaged. And that is one of the things that I think is quite vital to success. Klarna has had a huge amount of really, really good people. And, you know, you see them in the ecosystem now. Um, in Europe, many of them have, have moved on to be founders or they have very senior positions in other fintechs. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're trying to replicate. So we've been, I think, for the stage where we are as a company, we've we've probably hired 
uh, an unproportionate amount of senior and experienced people. Mm -hmm. It's not rare and bright to find somebody that's been in payments for over a decade. Um, right. So that's one of the things that I think matter. And it allows us really to skip some of the mistakes that we all made um in the in the first generation sort of say of, of fintechs we like to call ourselves second generation for that reason because everybody's <laughs> already been in a fintech before right um and since that was really the first wave you know we we, we did try things that didn't work and you, you, it's good to yeah. bring those learnings so that's one takeaway i would say for sure yeah and it's it's great to see first the the european mafias uh, starting to pop up or even more than to pop up i think that we are already as you said maybe on the almost the third generation of the in the european ecosystem but, but it's it's definitely great to see that that movement and uh, and that experience and um so if if we move into kind of the the second chapter where you go into kind of a different environment, uh, leading a, a stock listed company. So what do you like to kind of share there for, for the ones who are listening, who are thinking about scaling up and are not there yet and want mm -hmm. to want to prepare themselves for, for that stage of the business? Yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think initially when I when I went into that environment, I probably applied a lot of the learnings that I had from the first uh, seven years, so to say. Um, but right. some of the things that I think are um, that I would say are valuable. We, we operate in fintech, obviously, that's a regulated environment, right? There, there are rules and regulations. You can't just bootstrap the way that you can in other um, startup environments, perhaps. And I think it's, one of the vital things is to really pick the areas where you cannot cut corners because it will come back and handling sort of certain areas of the business in a solid way and recruit the right talent so that you don't have to go on backtrack, I think mm -hmm. is really valuable. Um, so it's one of the things that we've done at Bright, but it's definitely something that I saw in that environment because if eventually say that you do want to IPO, there's obviously requirements that come with that. Um, not just on a financial level, but also other areas of the business and mm -hmm. having things in order at a good level already then um, and having had that all through, I think it's very valuable because otherwise you're going to spend so much time cleaning that up and trying to get that in shape when really you want to be focusing on the business and then speaking to uh, investors and, and prepping uh, for that stage of the journey. So I would say that's, that's perhaps the main thing. Um, then personally, having been in high growth tech businesses my entire career, I, I would say that sort of becoming overly corporate for me personally is never a good thing um, right. because that's basically where I think younger companies come in and they can take market share because they're just more agile in the way that they decide and they just move more quickly and they maybe take um, more risk. Mm -hmm. And that, that I think is, can be quite healthy if you're competing um, with a corporate environment. So you want to make sure that you don't become too corporate. But in certain areas, unfortunately, you have to do the boring stuff um, to, yeah. to take it to that level. There, there's something interesting there that we that never discussed it on the show, which is typically we compare kind of the builder role with the scaler role uh, here mm -hmm. on the show. And I even like to see myself as more a kind of a early scaler role. I, I like to help companies to go from one to 20 million. And when they start becoming too bureaucratic, too corporate oriented mm -hmm. from, let's say, the 20 to 50 or 50 to 100, um, then it's maybe more a mid-scaler or a late-scaler uh, profile. So we can start mm -hmm. even segmenting the the builder and the scaler, right? So the builder is typically yeah. from zero to one and, and the scaler from one to 100. There is a lot of layers to go through in terms of skills and, and competences. 
And it, it's again, it's it's also another sign that the ecosystem is maturing when we are seeing more people specializing in specific stages of growth uh, of a company and having a lot of fun helping a company go from one to 10 or 10 to 20 or 20 to 50. 50 to 100 uh, and in specific verticals, um, uh, as you were saying. Mm. Cool. And also the role of the CEO that you were talking, it's it's exciting that you are putting a lot of emphasis on the importance of um, hiring the right people for the, the right stage of growth. Definitely kind of recruiting, fundraising, uh, also being close to customers, understanding the market and their communication strategy some of the of the main roles of of the ceo a topic that i'm also very passionate um about and uh, yeah let's let's jump into your current uh chapter um if you would, would like highlight the, the 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 first few years of uh, of bright uh, what has been some of the lessons learned getting back into the zero to one stage of building a company and now uh, going into into the scaling scaling up stage where you are now. Mm. Oh, that's the yeah. It was it was really really interesting because I basically started the company after already having climbed sort of the corporate ladder, which exactly. is maybe not your typical founder story, right? Um, so I went from basically being in the most corporate setting I'd ever been in in my entire career to being basically down to employee number one. Um, and right. starting from scratch. And that was definitely a change because of course in my previous role, I, I I was very fortunate to have a range of very senior people working with me that I could focus on who would then run their teams. And then I was back to basically rolling up the sleeves and doing everything myself. Um, I, as a person, am one of those people that I like to do things myself. And I usually have to make a conscious effort to, effort to withdraw myself and ask others to fix things mm -hmm. um, because I do have the tendency to just, oh, I'll quickly do this myself, which is not great when you're running a larger mm -hmm. company, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it suited me in that way. Um, but of course, you're just, your leverage is limited. You, there's limited hours in the day um, and you do just don't get as much done. So I think that was what's perhaps the biggest change. Um, the other piece, I think, was that before you really have a team, you're you're, you're quite alone um, with your decisions, right. and you're quite used to, especially in Scandinavia, being a fairly, um, how should we say, consensus-driven society, where where mm -hmm. you do tend to discuss things more. Not discussing with people as much as I was used to in my previous role was also a big change. Um, <laughs> but I got started. Actually, we sat initially in um, in an apartment here in the center of Stockholm in one room, um, which was sort of a co-working space because somebody would basically rent it as a room, but it really wasn't a professionally run co-working <laughs> space in that way. Um, so we, we all sat in one room and got started um, basically getting together the first version of the product. And one of the things that we then did was that we started speaking to potential customers really, really early. We actually had a number of customers already lined up when we launched the product. Um, and we had sort of gotten those lined up even before we started building, really, um, because we had, had identified what we thought was the gap in the market. Mm -hmm. And that really helped. And that has also that's actually the explanation as to why our funding journey has looked the way that it has, because we've been able to generate revenues from a fairly early point onwards um, compared to maybe what you normally see when you scale a fintech, right. which obviously you have to sort of front load the development of the other actual product and you have the licensing and, and, and all of that mm -hmm. regulation that you have to abide by is, is easy to bootstrap. Um, so that was basically really something that defined 
um, the first couple of months in the business, a lot of customer discussions, understanding what the challenges were, everything from, you know, consumer facing processes, but even back office. I'm sure that'll be familiar to a lot of people. Um, and that was, of course, quite different. And then very customer driven uh, since day one and being able already to generate revenues uh, since day one. This is uh, quite impressive. Uh, Quite amazing. Any any insights or tips there for 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 companies who are maybe thinking on a more on the fundraising front and and forgetting that uh, you can also fund your startup with with your uh, initial customers. Uh, again, we are not saying nothing around uh, huge funding rounds. Uh, there are different paths to to scale up a company, and we have seen bootstrapped companies that did an amazing job, uh, companies who raised a lot of capital also did an amazing job, and companies who didn't raise a lot, but kind of have a mixed approach, like the mm. one you are proposing here. So raising some money, but uh, being very sustainable from a unit economic perspective. Mm. Um, any insights there on how to start very customer-driven, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I'm obviously not the master fundraiser. You're going to find competitors of us that have raised 10 times as much as we have. But one of the things that I have found to be extremely useful is that we've had we've had a fund here in Stockholm that has funded us from the first day. Um, and they have been with us. They actually had an hypothesis about the space already before we started. Um, so that was really helpful. And they have been, and that will probably be my, one, my number one tip, um, they have been extremely interested in what we do in the business and therefore also very patient with us. Mm -hmm. So I have compared to, I think, cool. a lot of other founders I speak to, I have spent minimal time having to manage expectations. I have spent more time basically discussing um, in, a, in a very constructive manner what the challenges are and how we can solve them together. So basically, I would say our funding investor has been um, quite instrumental also to our initial customers. So that aligned beautifully because they had also seen a gap in the market. They had already spoken to businesses that had a need. So they made a lot of introductions for us early on. And that has been sort of that for us, that really, really worked right. nicely. Um, I think the worst thing that you can you can do is basically at a too premature stage, um, get an investor that has a lot of demands on the structure of things. Um, because just, you know, because not because it's not a valid question to ask as an investor, but rather because it's difficult to deliver um, right. in the early days. And that has also allowed us to be customer focused because they have given us a lot of leeway. Um, so what we have done from a funding point of view, we have rather done a number of smaller rounds whenever we saw mm -hmm. traction um, from right. the same funds. We now have two funds in the cap table rather mm -hmm. than doing one big round, which is also why we've never actually announced a funding round ever. Got it. <laughs> um, and that is, the, you know, I think to to some founders that may seem counterintuitive, because I know it's, of course, I mean, it's always nice also for the team to celebrate when you've done a big funding round where we have, you know, rather been quite under the radar and have just been focused on like building product and taking it to market. So a slightly different approach. And for us, it's worked well. So to that end, I would I would recommend it. But obviously, every business is different and every business has different funding needs. Absolutely. So and, um, and and maybe there is kind of two topics that I'd like to 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 um, to have your uh, thoughts about. The first one, it's all about how are you able to compete with with the legacy players, with with the big boys, mm. uh, in in these segments. And of course, I, I'm sure that you saw there an opportunity, and uh, and there is a way, and then you are doing it with with success. And and then also another another uh, direction that we were already going there, which is uh, 
if you feel any issues about competing with other tech players who are more funded uh, than mm. than Bright and how do you deal with that? But mm. Mm. Let, let's go where you would like to to start and happy to go in a, in a direction. <laughs> we can we can start with uh, the initial yeah. sort of legacy, yeah. uh, the initial one you brought up, the, the more sort yeah. of uh, legacy players in the market. Um, I mean, overall, the account account payment space is very new, but there is a decisive moment in account account um, that is the regulation that is PSD2. Um, for everyone who is maybe not familiar with that, basically right. what PSD2 is, is a regulation that sort of forces banks to provide standardized APIs for consumers to initiate payments from, basically through third-party providers such as Bright. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there are players that were already on the market prior to this regulation, but the product would have been built differently um, than if your starting point is uh, an API um, provided by a bank. Um, and given basically that sort of, uh, of course, any business over time has technical debt and accumulates basically legacy. Um, we sort of had we our our situation was a was a positive one from from two points of view or two different viewpoints. One being that we were able to build on the back of PSD two and on the back of these APIs, which has an impact on our on the infrastructure of our product, mm -hmm. and hopefully solve us migration projects that I think everybody who's been in tech for a while has seen and knows are painful. Um, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is that, you know, for example, our, our, our products are entirely cloud-based. Um, they're basically on 2019 level and onwards, not you know 2009 or 2005. And that has been helpful in the way that we design products um, because obviously in between those time spans, different things have happened. So we are also, for example, um, building mobile first because we were started at a point in time right. when the majority of traffic was already mobile. In previous businesses, we were watching the the shift from desktop <laughs> to mobile. So you're, you're basically trying to adapt your product to be mobile friendly, which now sounds, right. of course, archaic, um, but that has had a bearing. So that's basically, I think, maybe from a product point of view, that's probably our biggest um, sort of proposition that we offer compared to legacy players, I think, is, is on that side. And mm -hmm. um, when it comes to competing with startups that have had significantly more funding than us, um, perhaps clarifying one thing here is that we we probably could have raised more if we had wanted to, but yeah. we haven't needed to. Um, so that's the difference. So it's not that we sort of we didn't want to or um, we just we haven't really had a need um, because right. we have been well founded and we continue to be well funded uh, today. Um, but of course, you do wonder as a founder, if you see a competitor that is on a similar scale in terms of similar size mm -hmm. of people or revenues, you never really know, but you suspect um, then you do, of course, question yourself when you see them raise really large rounds if you're not running fast enough. And that is right. a sort of, I think, a constant discussion from a competitive um, stance of sort of, okay, are, are other players going to move faster than us just because they have access to more cash and they're maybe over-investing in certain parts of the business that we have basically constraints in. And I was, let's just say, I was more nervous about this maybe a year ago when the market looked very different. And we were discussing basically, okay, maybe we should just do a big round and really um, speed things up. Now, since earlier this year, now in 2022, <laughs> things have changed. I'm really happy with how we did things because we're one of the few companies, if not the only one, perhaps, I don't know, um, but definitely one of the few companies in our space that hasn't had any layoffs. We continue to hire um, because we haven't over-recruited, because we haven't taken big bets. And I say that, you know, with the utmost respect for everybody else who's, who has unfortunately had to do layoffs. So it's not that um, right. I, I, I want to sort of say that we've been smarter than them. Not at all. That's not my point. 
but we've been doing things differently. And fortunately, that has now led um, to a situation um, where we haven't had to do those tough decisions and we continue to grow. So now I am uh, I feel more comfort around the stance that I chose back then um, when I had maybe more doubt around that a, a year ago. Yeah, and it's not an easy uh it's not an easy moment for those companies that are seeing corrections on their valuations and to raise a, a B round or or a C round mm -hmm. with this market sure. correction and, and needing the the cash to to keep scaling. Uh, sure. It's yeah, it's it's a tough moment to to be in, and uh, that's why we always come back into the fundamentals. We should be raising to be able to speed up the the pace of growth and and not raising just to be able to to keep the the business moving forward. Let's say so. Mm, it, mm, it no, really no, for sure. Make, yeah. Now, right. but in all fairness, of course, I mean, I also have respect for that. Not every business model has an immediate path to revenue. That's I mean, there point. are yeah. fintech business revenue. I mean, there, there are fintech businesses, right? Or business models um, that primarily need consumer acquisition. We are B2B2C. If you're a direct to consumer business, it is different. Exactly. And there's just no way that you can make that profitable basically overnight. It doesn't work that way, right? Um, so there are business models for who, the, you know, raising initially is absolutely essential. And in all fairness, when, when we built the product and we got licensed for Payment Institute here and in, or Payment Institution, I think is the correct term, um, here in Sweden, um, that is also an investment. And that is not something that you can just sort of, you know, do by, uh, you know, living on a on a very limited budget for, for a couple of months and then you just sort of get that done. I mean, you do need external investors. So depending on where you are also in the uh, the life of your business uh, i guess it differs but i think we are very fortunate to have come to the point that we have um at this point in time when basically the macro environment changed mm -hmm. um, others may not have been as fortunate but yeah. definitely and of course there is uh, another challenge is when we start very customer driven is because we are so dependent on those early revenues from customers to sustain operations that we mm -hmm. might be more open to the temptation of developing a product that uh, would fit into the, those early customers yeah. but not might be not very scalable uh, and we start creating a, a frankenstein uh, on on the product perspective so very true absolutely mm -hmm. and also of course i mean in the beginning i think for any company that has a limited customer portfolio customers also realize of course Exactly. Um, that they are unproportionately important <laughs> to you <laughs> so you'll get more of those demands to become a frankenstein as your as your phrase that so that's, that's a very good point i think uh, i think on on the bootstrapping layer that's that's the most difficult uh, thing mm -hmm. to balance or one of the most difficult things to to balance uh, how are we able to be to not be so dependent on those early customers even them mm. knowing that we are right <laughs> no, no, no. no precisely and what's the right balance between sort of building for scale for the future and then prioritizing revenues in the short term um good point because as well yeah i think in a corporate environment as to sort of what you were asking about earlier my previous role um, it was much easier to take decisions and say, okay, you know, you look at whatever, whatever revenue that customer brings in, this is the demand that they're having. And then you can just basically just decide and say, oh yeah, okay, it's not worth it. We're not going to be able to build that. Sorry. We're not going to be able to prioritize. And it really wouldn't matter in the bigger scheme of things. When you're an early stage startup or even as a scale up, 
um, and you know that customer accounts to revenue that maybe is equivalent of three or four FTE that you can finance on the back of that, you think a little bit harder. It's not as easy to just look on the back and say, oh, no, no I'm not going right. to do that. Um, so that is also, I think, a, a change in mindset and trying to balance that, I think, is a, is a challenge for, for anybody that is not in a super scaled up mode as yet. Right. Something that is interesting is that it seems clearly that your your areas of strength or where you started your career were around marketing and and products, and then your evolution into into becoming uh, a CEO of, of a listed company and then of of your own company. Um, you already it's good to have this kind of product intuition in the early days and also understanding how to market uh, the product. This helps a lot. And then it's much more kind of the transition on how can we become more sales driven, uh, I would say maybe kind of covering the kind of the revenue machine that we like to talk about, uh, the CS, the sales, the product, marketing, mm -hmm. those, those disciplines. I, I imagine that this helped you a lot kind of starting up your, your own company, having a domain of those disciplines. Do you agree with that? I'm Sorry, I'm going free flow here, but uh, was just thinking no, about no, it. No, no, definitely, definitely. I think one of the things that was most helpful, I think, in terms of looking at different areas of the business was actually when um, in Klarna, for example, you basically watch the business being built um, at in real time, more or less. That's how I've described it before, and I still think that that's very much true. So what you see is you, you get a really good sense of um, the challenges in each and every area of the business, just because you're so close to it. Mm -hmm. um, because obviously at that stage of my career, I wasn't responsible for a customer service department. I mean, in my last role, I would have had a COO who was running customer service. So I would have had discussions around, for example, KPIs for customer service. But right. where I perhaps learned more was in the early days when you sort of see that being built and you see sort of, you know, the mistakes that can be made and how they're being corrected. Mm -hmm. um, and that is definitely something that has been um, really, really helpful. Um, and that is, it's not my strength, not at all, as, as you very correctly outlined, my strength is much more on the um, marketing sales and product side than in perhaps operations or finance, um, but it's helpful to have seen it um, so that you can compensate for that not being your home turf as a founder. Right. Something that is quite unique and that I'm very proud to see is, is the fact that um, you are a female uh, leader, founder and, uh, and CEO and operator as well uh, in the past in, in the fintech uh, sector that is very uh, male driven in, in a way. Um, any did, did you face any kind of issues? Uh, uh, what what has been mm -hmm. your experience leading uh, a company as a as a female leader? We all uh, wish that this is not a topic at all in mm -hmm. our future episodes, but uh, I think it's also good for for the women leaders that are listening to us, and even for for the male leaders to understand uh, how we can help uh, more female founders and, and CEOs to to succeed. Right? Mm, no, no, very good question. I think I would say that, of course, it's hard for me to benchmark because I only have one perspective, and that is right. the one of a female. Yeah. Um, so it's hard for me to say how I would have been treated differently. What I can say is that um, early in my career, I definitely had more situations where I felt like, okay, what, what does, would this have happened, or would this person have said this if I were a male? That has become increasingly rare now that I've become more senior. Um, to the extent that it's, it, it barely ever happens now, but of course, I still witness it sometimes um, in, in other situations, maybe outside of my own business. Um, and 
I've been fortunate in the sense that I've had really amazing managers that I've worked with and they've been very supportive of me. And I think that has been key um, throughout my career. I've never actually reported to a female, which I think is a shame. I've never served in a board with another female. I've only had male managers. <laughs> so it's been, um, I, I, I can't say that, you know, I've had a strong female promoting me, um, but I do believe that it helps um, to have stronger females in your perimeter. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I'm really happy with here at Bright is I think we have a pretty good range of really amazingly senior women. And some of them have openly said that they came to the business because they wanted to work under a female CEO um, and wow. vice versa. Like you have that people basically great. that, yeah, no, it's yeah. been really, I'm very, very um, grateful for that really. And I see the layer below as well. Um, so they in turn recruit more females. That exactly. sort of, yeah. And I think there's a lot of questions around sort of, um, not just for what has your experience been as a female founder mm -hmm. and CEO, but also sort of how can we promote more women in fintech? And yeah. I personally very strongly believe that like just hiring great women um, is yeah. perhaps the best way. And then obviously it's more easily said than done. Um, but there are, it's, it's not sort of, you know, there is not an industry-wide plot to keep women out. It's, it's not that sometimes yeah. I feel it can be portrayed that way and it becomes sort of a Correct. confrontational yeah. sort of discussion, which I really don't think it is. Um, yeah. But just being more conscious of it, I think, is, is is a really good start. And then, of course, I would love to see more female founders as well. Yeah. Um, that's definitely uh, something that's, of course, the numbers are correct. It's And the debate yeah. is correct to address it. And it's good to see also being seeing more female investors, which also helps to create more female founders and CEOs. Um, yeah, the, the female investor side. And what you said, it's really important to have more gender parity on the founding teams and especially on the leadership teams. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. of course, it's it's difficult you when you are looking for a, a co-founder. It's someone you really do well with and, and that you are up to go through the ups and downs of building a business. So you are not seeing if it is a man or, or human that you are working with. And again, it's two or three people. It might be more difficult to, to to have gender parity there. But then at the leadership team layer, where we already have seven people or five to seven people on your leadership team, then I think it, it becomes a choice uh, if we want to have a more diverse uh, environment. And, and again, not to go through the typical arguments that we all know that diversity and thinking from different lens helps us to bring better solutions um, to the table, right? No, no, for sure. I think one of the things, though, that is is tricky, especially about fintech, um, is that, and I think people don't really want to talk about it, but it's just, for me, it's, 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 it's such a clear challenge, is that fintech companies, by definition, have a really high share of engineers in the company. Um, I mean, you're not really a tech company if you don't have a sizable chunk of employees that are actually working on, on the tech, right? Right. And... What I said just now about basically hiring more females, um, that works really nicely in a lot of different areas. It really doesn't work in tech because mm -hmm. the talent pool isn't there. The talent pool in tech is not a 50-50 um, female male. So if I bluntly put, even if I were to hire every female engineer that crosses my path or if my CTO um, would do that, we still would not rate no, we still not have gender parity. So I don't think we're really going to reach that until we see basically more females graduating, basically with engineering um, or de development, basically degrees. Um, and then I think we're going to see true gender parity 
but until we're there, um, there's plenty to work on in the other areas of the force. So it's not an excuse for anything, but just an observation that I think very often goes unsaid. And that's a good observation that we are also we also discussed here on the show. It also depends on the vertical. Maybe fintech typically would be more male oriented in a certain way, mm -hmm. but health tech, for instance, we see much more gender parity around the founders. Um, maybe because it's it's a topic that uh, women also are more attracted to. Uh, not only because people don't uh, the male or female don't have the opportunities because they are more passionate about certain topics than other topics, certain verticals mm -hmm. than other verticals, or certain functions than other uh, functions. Right. So. Uh, I would even go to far as far sorry. Uh, I would yeah. even go as far as to say that um, I know a couple of really cool health techs here in town, and most of the founders in that don't actually come from tech. They come from health-related industries. So maybe they were doctors yeah. before, um, or they would have yeah. worked basically more closely to sort of to health rather than tech. Versus in fintech, I think fintech founders more often stem from fintech from before. If you, if that makes sense, yeah. basically. Yeah, I think that yeah, could yeah. also be a part of it. Good point. And this is the moment where we get into the final uh, question and answer uh, to to wrap up the format to, to wrap up the show. So mm -hmm. let's start with the free self self-reflective questions. Uh, the first one, if you would have the opportunity to meet Lena uh, at the beginning of Bright and have a coffee with her, what advice would you offer to your younger self? I would, I would probably tell myself that um, to to stress less and that things will develop um, as long as you get the right people on board. I think that sort of that was a personally very big relief for me when I got more senior people around me that shared the vision of the company and that helped carry it. Like you're, you don't have to do everything by yourself. There will be people that will be sort of there along the way um, and they will make all the difference. I think that would be the number one advice probably. Love it. And what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? I'm going to have to say it's perhaps the same thing. It's perhaps, I continue, <laughs> I continue to be amazed by the, the, the people that join us. Um, I'm really proud of some of the people that we've been able to get on board and the impact they've made. That is perhaps the number one thing, I think. Um, then in terms of achievements, um, I'm also proud of that we haven't had um, to do a lot of organizational adjustments. Um, I think by comparison, we've been really stable. And because of where we are in fintech today, people mm -hmm. are more senior. Um, if I go back 10 years of my career, we were all in our late 20s, basically. You know, right. nobody had a family or very few of us. Um, we were all crunching hard. Correct. Um, Good point. Now, yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's just yeah. a different time. Now, the majority of my staff have children to come home to. Um, they depend on a business being more stable. And I'm proud that we've been able to provide that stability. Um, that that's also something I'm proud of. I was yeah. This is a great developer position that uh, that sometimes we usually have this kind of discussion. If you would go into a VC backed company or into tech, uh, you can't have a life, so you need to prioritize. If you want to have a life, you need to go into the corporate world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's good to see that finally there is we are seeing an option to to still do what we love and at the same time still be there for for our families and also work on our family plans or mm. on our personal plans for if, even if it, if it is without family right so yeah. good good point worst advice ever received 
I think the worst advice I've ever been given is that I have been told um, that I should decrease my pace, uh, not my pace of speaking, but rather um, <laughs> if I if I get a question and um, I provide an answer, I should spend more time basically um, making the individual who is asking me feel like I'm really thinking about that question rather than basically prompting an answer straight away, um, which I tend to do because I... Yeah, I'm a fast talker and I, I tend to think about things a lot. Um, and I think the underlying logic was that it would help people feel appreciated more so than improve the quality of my answer. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a what, what it somehow sort of landed with me in a way where I should basically um, try to be less intellectual. Um, and I thought that was a very awkward advice that I really can't at all um, sort of see the value in to be honest i mean i personally yeah. quite appreciate if people sort of um give, give me the impression that they've thought about something that i'm asking them rather than saying like i will think about this <laughs> um, right. so that would be obviously the one that i've been given by somebody very senior um that i felt like mm, can't, can't really subscribe <laughs> <laughs> good one and now the resources that you that you recommend uh, your favorite book uh, business or non-business uh, this is to get to know uh, our founders here so you don't need to go just business <laughs> yeah. this is funny you're asking the right person because I actually have a I have a university degree not just in business but also in literature wow. um, so, so yeah really odd I guess for somebody in tech but I, I studied both literature and business well um so I've read a huge amount um, of books uh, actually um, but one of my absolute favorite books um, that I've recently reread is The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which mm -hmm. sounds incredibly intellectual, it really isn't, but it's a beautiful book. It's a lot about um, interpersonal relationships between people that goes very deep into relationships. And if you are somebody that appreciates basically um, that ultimately everything around the book basically boils down to people. I think it's a book that you will appreciate. Um, and I tend to say when we talk about Bright, I tend to say that we really only have two assets in the business. One is one is tech, the other is people. So if we're not basically doing a good job with our people, then we, we have very little left, really, because we're not a manufacturing business. We don't have a hall somewhere with, with lots of physical assets, right? It's, it's only tech and people. Yeah. Um, so that would be perhaps my, my favorite book on a, on a personal note. And then there's obviously business books that I appreciate, but I, in all fairness, I tend to listen to them as podcasts. Um, right. more than reading because it suits my lifestyle better i can i can listen to them whilst i'm on the plane you know, or while i'm commuting to work um right. so there's there's a great number and i think there's there's better people to recommend them than me perhaps got it and favorite movie or series um one of my favorites that i've recently and this is owing to the love of to show um that i've recently rewatched um is actually his dark materials um mm -hmm. by philip pullman who's a wonderful author um and mm -hmm. I'm watching it um, basically together with my niece. And I really recommend it. It's a beautiful production. Awesome. Original recommendations and, and new additions to, to the list, which is great. Uh, favorite podcast, excluding, excluding this one? Um, I, um, I have previously talked about a number of different fintech po uh, podcasts. But if I'm brutally yeah. honest, um, I listen to news um, quite a bit. So I do like right. the stories of our times by the Financial Times. Mm -hmm. It's something that I really like. And I also like The Economist podcast. Um, and I listen, that's typically if you catch me sitting with my headset doing deep work here in the Bright Headquarter, that's usually what I listen to. It's either The Economist or Stories of Our Times for the Financial Times. Love it. 
Lena, thank you so much for making the time to be with us. It was really a pleasure to host you on the show and uh, all the best in the in the next chapters, Scaling Up uh, Bright. And you are always welcome to come back to, to share your lessons learned as you scale your company. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you really for inviting me. So great talking to you. Likewise. And to our community, thanks for being there. As you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier from zero to one, one to 10 and 10 to 100. See you soon and keep scaling.